Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. In our last episode, we were talking about social media companies and how they're affecting politics and society, specifically in several Asian countries, with the net effect being empowering authoritarianism. This episode follows on from that discussion, with one of the people trying to fix some of the problems and put the online space to positive use again. In 2016, as the extent of the populist wave sweeping the world was becoming clear, Iyad and I were trying to understand what was going on with social media and the polarization that it was fueling. Our guest today is one of the first people we turned to. He's an expert in the public sphere. His name is Bil Abbas bin Krida, and he's the German-Algerian founder of the Munadhara Initiative. Munadhara is the Arabic word for debate. The initiative was founded in 2011 and is based on a simple format. A debate motion is put forward, and contributions are sought either for or against the motion. Contributions are made via video submissions online, and each video can be up to 99 seconds long but no more. After a voting system, winners on both sides are invited to a televised debate that's broadcast across the Arab world. The Munadhara initiative has already run dozens of debates, and they're all in Arabic, and what's really exciting here is that the initiative is independent of any Arab government and is civil society run. There were a few of us around whilst this episode was recorded, and it turned into a conversation. As well as my voice and Bil Abbas's, you'll also hear Nasr Wadadi and Diyad al-Baghdadi chip in with comments and questions. What do you get when you put four Arabs together in a room? A really thoughtful discussion about the public sphere, actually. Who'd have thought that you could provide the entire Arab world with decades worth of televised critical reasoning-enhancing debate programs and training in debate for young people for less than the cost of a single fighter jet? It's almost like there are better ways of bringing democracy to the Middle East than at the barrel of a gun. I hope you enjoy the discussion. So, I'm Bil Abbas Ben Krida. I founded the Munadhara Initiative a couple of years ago to support some of the most neglected voices in Arab public discourse, such as youth, women, marginalized communities, some of the people who kind of led the call for change a couple of years ago and who are being left out of the conversations about the future of their countries. So we created a, an initiative that aims to break down the barriers for some of these communities to voice their opinions on key issues, political, social issues. We do that through an online platform, and we also have a television program. So that's the short summary of what Munadhara does. Part of the initiative is basically traveling through the Arab world and training young Arabs in debate. Why do you do that? Because... For youth to be able to shape the future of the region, they need to be able to express their opinions, to shape the discourse that really is the menu of options. Where does the region go? It's really in the public sphere and in the debate, uh, a vibrant, constructive debate that people can actually make up their minds about just what it is that they would like to see as a future for the region. So it's, it's of critical importance that we nurture that skill and that we cultivate it in order to bring out the best of the Arab world and in order for ideas to advance and evolve. And you basically created an online platform where people upload their 60, 90 second responses that's to the right. question. Yeah, so it's, it's 99 seconds. I think that's really important. Harmonizing the length of contributions is part of the approach that we're bringing into this because once you do that, you have a level playing field for everybody. So you have 99 seconds, the challenge is clear, it's very focused, you make your argument in that time, and you choose if you're on the pro and the contra side, 
of a policy motion. So it'll be a motion like, this House believes that constitutionally we should enshrine minority rights or freedom of speech should never be limited by law. You know, so we try some of these really major questions in the form of a motion. You as a youth can participate by uploading your video either on the pro or on the contra side. And then there's a voting process that happens throughout a couple of weeks. And by the end of that process, we determine winners from the online competition who then are invited to take part in a live televised program. And this is where they appear alongside a well-known mainstream policymaker forming a team and debating with them on an equal footing. So you're basically normalizing the idea of meritocratic evaluation of ideas in the Arab world. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, you could put it that way. See, see, for youth in the Arab world, there's hardly any way to move to opinion leadership because it's such an entrenched system. So for you to actually you know, become an influential voice, there are very few opportunities. So the whole system is built around the idea of breaking down the very barriers that are holding youth back from living up to their full potential. Amazing. So the value for Modnadara, for me, I'll give you two quick vignettes. The first one is one of the most hilarious YouTube videos that you can find in the Arab world are videos of political debates on satellite TVs going completely haywire. There were instances of a Jordanian guy who they were live on a talk show and the guy pulled a pistol on the other guy because he didn't like what he was saying about him. There was a famous fist fight that broke out on one of Al Jazeera's leading talk shows. There's been one, they went completely out of stop broadcasting that happened in Morocco where somebody threw live on TV through a glass of water, not the water, the actual glass at, at the, the opponent. Uh, There's flipping over tables. And, yeah. and this isn't just the, the TV debates. These happen in Arab parliaments. It well. happens in Arab parliaments, but usually they pull the plug on, they censor those. And the second vignette is that it's a little bit almost a, a comedy where the binary of a debate in the Arab world today is either you're a traitor you're a Zionist or you're an agent of some, take your pick, there are lots of options, or you are a Kafir. And Munadar for me is actually an excellent tool that is helping the youth break out of this toxic binary. And it helps people to actually learn even the art of respectful debate. I don't have to have your personal share your opinion and it's not an insult or an affront to you if i disagree with you and i can argue exactly what you said but we need to be able to have even civil discussions i noticed that it doesn't seem to be so difficult to teach you know one of the youth even those who might not have what we would consider western style education it doesn't seem so difficult to teach them the art of debate. In fact, some of them, a lot of them, in fact, I mean, as, as a board member of Monadara, I really enjoy going through those videos. So it's, it's just really interesting to see how some of those videos, they already have this really mature critical thinking, and you, you're kind of amplifying that. So I just want to ask you this question, and what does it mean for, you know, we, we talk a lot about we have to teach people critical thinking and stuff, and, you know, I have my own take on it, which is that, 
uh, it's not that difficult to t t teach people critical thinking. It's just that we're so used to being so partisan that we switch off our critical thinking. Right. I just want. I just thought maybe I'm sure that you'll have something in, you know interesting to say about that. I think this is a great point, Iyad. So here's my take on this. Two things really matter. One is format. Format really, really matters, and people underestimate it. If you create a certain structure for a conversation, it can work absolute wonders. So here I'm talking about harmonizing contributions, 99 seconds. You know, having voting, for example, in the live debates actually works wonders. Let me just tell you why. Voting creates a different dynamic for a debate because here you are trying to woo the middle ground because that's where you can sway people to your side, right? As opposed to the extremes. And just to explain, so in our television debates, we have a pre-poll and we have a post-poll. The winning team is the team that manages to sway more votes onto its side. So if you start off with 40%, you get 46% in the second vote, you're actually declared the winning team despite the fact that you have 46% because you swayed 6% onto your side. That's so key. That is, that is key. That is key, Nasser. And this is a proven and tested system. It's borrowed from the Oxford Union. But the point here is a small tweak in format actually results in more civilized conversation because now you have people actually wooing the middle ground, right? So this is just one example. The other I want to say, and I think this is really, really important, the mere selection of participants can have a really powerful impact on you know, the tone of the debate. So once you have these youth who join the team along with policymakers, suddenly you know, you're already inducing civility through the mere selection of the people who are actually participating in the debate. Because once, when you have the usual talking heads, they're used to screaming at each other, all these debates do quote-unquote debates because the term is used inflationarily, right? Like debate is not debate the way we define it, right? Debate so, is a fist fight. Debate is a fist fight in the Arab world, right? And it highlights disagreement, right? All of these formats are designed to highlight existing disagreements because reduction sells, right? It's commercially very viable to highlight what, you know, what differentiates opinions and to sort of juxtapose the extremes, right? But it's actually in the middle where the really, really interesting changes happen. So that's some of the tweaks that really, really make a difference. I think you forgot also, I mean, I say this uh, part tongue in cheek, but I'm actually serious when I point it out. It's also nice that you have a voting system or people vote knowing that that vote is not, is not going to be rigged. It might sound like a trivial thing, but again, because of what we've seen in the past 20 years, you know, after the uh, famous uh, François Mitterrand declaration in 1989, the Congrès de la Bolle, you know, all these dictators took off their military suit, uh, uniforms and put on suits and kept on conducting these mechan mechanical votes where we all know the, uh, the outcome. Mm. And so like having your opinion expressed and having it count towards in a vote that is transparent. Yeah. And then also learning that it's okay if you lose. Yeah. I think that's valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And getting, getting the opposing sides to agree in advance to the rules of the debate, again, is a really, really important tweak to the whole thing because suddenly, you know, the, uh, the result itself becomes more authoritative because the parties agreed before engaging in the conversation, right? So I, I think I want to take this forward towards, I mean, we speak a lot about, uh, I mean, the whole, the whole uh, mission of Monadaras happens to be focused on the Arab world. Again, I mean, we joke to ourselves that we have kind of a debate crisis in the Arab world, but it seems to have infected the entire world. 
So maybe speak about, I mean, I know we have, we have had deep and long discussions about public sphere theory. So maybe we, you know, maybe you could comment on, on your own education on that. Currently, and this is what I'm doing at Yale Law School, I'm, I'm tackling this very question, Iyad, as you know. We have seen a deterioration in the quality of public conversation everywhere in the world. Where it gets really interesting is when we look at the differences, because while the deterioration is global in scope, the extent of deterioration differs from place to place. And this is, this is why I think it is so, so important to study these differences. And this is, you know, this is a broad undertaking. We need to look at, you know, just what constitutes a healthy public discourse. And then from there, you know, taking these ideals and looking how, how we see qualitative differences in, in one place uh, as opposed to another is something that I'm very, very interested in. I don't have all the answers, but I think it's really, really critical to study uh, these questions. To quote your countryman, Mohammed Faleg, who puts it this way, what you're really doing is that you're helping to change the Arab way. And the way he uh, describes it, he says, in the rest of the world, people dig, dig, dig till they reach rock bottom, they stop. Right. We in the Arab world, that's actually when we get excited. We keep on digging. <laughs> Good one. Let me ask you, I'm going to usurp the powers of the moderators. And can you give us a sense of the actual putting together of one of the episodes, the process, the human side? Like you have to, it's a huge operation. There's a lot of logistics involved in this. Walk us through how does that look like? So, you know, the process itself really is three months for a debate because the live television program is preceded by the online debate, which itself takes about six weeks. And then that, in turn, is preceded by the outreach effort, which is where we're on the ground training youth and trying to give a voice, especially to those who are sort of not the tech-savvy layers of Arab society, because that's, that's the approach of the organization is to be truly uh, inclusive. You know, choosing the topic, of course, is a is a major effort that is important. We go by a set of rules that follow the ideal of common concern. So we're 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 trying to present issues that are of greatest concern to the greatest number of people. So here you have the major political, the major social questions, major cultural questions. A lot of the time, we go to our uh, Facebook community to get a sense of what people would like to debate. Then it goes to an editor in chief who is experienced and has the professional skills to formulate it into a motion that is designed to drive the debate. Then that goes out to the online debate, and this is where people uh, start uploading their videos, and we have the voting process, and then the preparation for the television program starts. Television program has uh, been recorded in Morocco, Tunisia, Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, and Sana'a, Yemen, just before the war, which was, by the way, an incredible experience. So, you know, generally speaking, there's the outreach to find the senior opinion leaders, which we want to be of a, a similar caliber in order to give both sides a, an opportunity to present their argument as best as possible. And then, you know, there's, you know, we hire a production team locally, of course, that, you know, receives our Bible, so to speak, you know, where all of the details, technical details are in. And, and that, that gets uh, implemented. It is a bit of a moving circus in the sense that, you know, everything would be so much easier if you had it centralized, but then, you know, consistent with the pan-Arab purview of the organization, it's really important to present these locally as well. So let me jump in again. You mentioned earlier as an example, 
for example, introducing a, uh, a motion to protect minority rights. Mm -hmm. And then you go now back to the pan-Arab. Again, you know the word pan-Arab has become poisonous in the last 20 years because of the, the excesses of bathisms and the crime of... How did you actually deal with these sensitive topics? So when it comes to, let me just say about pan-Arab, when we say pan-Arab, what we're really trying to say is that this is for all Arabic speakers. It's not See, that's exactly where I'm jumping in. Right. What about the Amazigh? What about, for example, the Pular speakers in my own birth country in Mauritania? What about the Nubians? What about the Kurds? How do you factor that in? So, so, so I think when it comes to defining a, a, a public sphere, mm -hmm. you cannot but go with a language because that's the connective tissue of conversation. It's language. So borders don't matter. If we have an Arabic speaker who's living in Europe, and as a matter of fact, we do get participants from Europe and elsewhere, then they can participate. Or indeed foreigners who speak Arabic, right? So the, it's, it's sort of consistent with the logic on the internet in general for discourse where you don't have any borders, right? So you mean, like, for example, if you had people who are a minority come and want to discuss about their own particular issue, you're supportive of it. It's just they need to speak the, the language that is the show is conducting in. Yeah, they, they just need to, yeah, we just, you just need to have one I language. There, for I believe there were examples of that in past debates. Yeah, Excellent. yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. So you're basically saying that you're not concerned about the ethnic group, the national group, the ideological group. What concerns you is only the sphere in which the exchange of ideas takes place. That's right. And the only barrier you see to the exchange of ideas is uh, language incompatibility. That's so that's right. why you're using a language to define it. That's that's exactly right, Ahmed. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a question about what happens after the debate. Uh, I mean, I know a bit about how some of the youth end up becoming celebrities in their own right. So maybe, you know, tell us a little bit about a bit about that. So yes, yeah, we have uh, a couple of really shining examples of uh, youth who go through the system. They start in a small outreach workshop in Yemen or or they don't start uh, through an outreach workshop and they just find us online like the uh, gentleman from Mauritania, uh, Ahmed Salem. People find us and they have this great moment uh, on television where, you know, people really discover the tremendous potential that they have. And for a lot of them, it's a transformative, life-changing experience. Some of them have gone on to become young politicians in their countries. Others have started their own television programs, yet others have become successful entrepreneurs. So there's this wide array of uh, really, really incredible stories of some of these you know, most outstanding Munadra participants. And we've had over 10,000 in the last uh, six years. Some of them really, really excelled. And you know, we piloted a Munadra Fellowship. Iyad, you were a critical part of this, not only from the strategy perspective, but also in, in its actual implementation, where we gathered 12 of our youth in a one-year program and supported them. And you know, it's, it's just a, really just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many more that we could support. But, you know, I think what they do in inspiring other youth is just as important as the individual success that they have. So because this is the Arab Tyrant Manual, I'm going to ask a question which some of our audience might ask, which is uh, we normally focus on authoritarianism. This is a really cool initiative. What does it have to do with authoritarianism and the political system of the Arab world? People emancipate themselves from imposed narratives in the public sphere. It only happens in the public sphere, nowhere else. And that's why it is important in, over, in order to overcome tyranny and authoritarianism, nurturing a critical 
a vibrant and constructive public sphere is of pivotal importance. So I think any, anybody who's working towards freedom, democracy, human rights, wherever they may be, they must realize that everything ultimately depends on public demand. Public demand in the sense that if you don't have a mass of people who have a critical mass of people who are behind your project, your project will not succeed. And therefore, it's really, really important to nurture a vibrant public sphere. So shifting regions, you said that a vibrant public sphere is necessary for democracy. Is the degradation of that public sphere in the West, therefore, part of the cause of the decline of democracy? I think it's, I think it's the single most important cause. The deterioration of public discourse in America is threatening democracy in America. Europe is, is not, obviously not quite there, but it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge threat to democracy because you know what are the central values of the public sphere they are truth they are civil and constructive engagement including and and perhaps most importantly with those that you disagree with they are nurturing a sense of uh, a common project a national project right that people are working towards all of that's going lost in the ongoing corrosion of the public sphere so it's really really important uh, that this issue be addressed Following up on what you just said, that it seems to me that authoritarian regimes would be threatened by something like the Monadara Initiative. And I noticed that when you were mentioning which countries you have access to, I mean, maybe talk a bit about how you run, I mean, how do you handle the authorities in these countries, which I'm sure try to censor you? Yeah, so, so there are a couple of things about that, Yet One is that we have somehow, you know, being a, an organization that supports debate, you kind of have the benefit of the doubt. And let me explain what I mean by that. Unlike somebody who is promoting, you know, a certain agenda and an advocacy agenda, that's, you know, almost always perceived as a subversive effort and therefore gets put into a certain category. If you're promoting public discourse and especially youth engagement, you know, it's ostensibly something innocuous right so so this is a, a major advantage that allows us to operate in countries where a lot of civil society organizations uh, no longer exist having said that it is of course a very challenging environment to to operate in you know at the time we started we had a lot more options of uh, places where we could hold our debates at this point they're really mostly happening in tunis beirut and istanbul uh, Istanbul actually happened much, you know, much later in the history of the organization because some of the places where we used to do our television program just no longer allow us uh, that freedom, you know. And then it's and then it's kind of a fight that happens on the ground with each debate. So there is a lot of ambiguity uh, around what authorities tell you about whether or not your event is welcome, because if in doubt, authorities will, you know, want uh, to claim plausible deniability. And so they won't actually tell you that your event is banned, but instead they'll tell you, you know, why don't you go to the communications ministry? And then the communications ministry tells you, you are welcome. We'd love to have your debate, but it's actually the interior ministry that decides. So you go to Dakhliya and they tell you, oh, really? They, did, they said that? Okay, what, well, here's what you have to do. Go back to the communications ministry. Tell them the interior ministry has no problem with this. So you end up in a situation where it's denial by delay. And this happened in, uh, in Morocco for us, twice in fact. So, 
So, you know, it, it, is, it is something where you have to struggle each time for, for each debate. The only places that are, where you can certainly hold a debate on and talk about whatever you want are Tunis and Beirut at this point. But, you know, that it, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be worth a fight if it was an easy fight, right? So I was afraid that you were going to say at this point, we're going to have to go to Malta. But thank God for Tunis <laughs> and Beirut. <laughs> so, but, um, the nitty gritty. How much does this cost? So, Munadara's annual budget is about $1.4 million. This is the entire operation, so on the ground, outreach workshops, over 200 per year in 11 countries. All of the television programs, all of the digital debates and the infrastructure and the marketing costs is about $1.4 million. That's amazing. You, you've done a lot with $1.4 million a year. But how do you get? How did you put this together? Who funds it? So we have we've been fortunate to have a pool of funders that really believe in the mission of the Munadra Initiative. We've received support from the Federal Foreign Office of Germany, from the Swedish International Development Agency, the Robert Bosch Foundation, Open Society Foundation. So I think we have certainly made the case very well to our funders, and you know there's also an alignment in terms of what specific contribution uh, an initiative like Munadara can make to the context of the Arab world. What are some of your red lines when it comes to funding? So the single biggest red line, uh, Nasser, is that donors cannot determine or influence in any way whatsoever the topics that are debated or the guests that are chosen. This is really, really important because in order for Munadara to live up to its reputation as a neutral arbiter of discourse in the Arab world, there cannot be any sense of, you know, perhaps some donor is dictating. And, you know, we've had requests from donors, uh, including one in the Arab world, who uh, were proposing a debate topic, you know. And, and of course, you know, that's a, that's a big red line, so we don't do that. Um, you know, there's one anecdote I like to tell uh, which is about uh, a debate we held. It was DD17, our 17th live debate, which was about the motion, there is no Western conspiracy against the Arab world. Hot topic, as you know, in the mm -hmm. Arab world, conspiracy mm -hmm. theories are widely, wildly popular. So we held this debate, and the team that was arguing that there is a Western conspiracy against the Arab world won the debate. They, they crushed the other team, you know, like I think they had 80% or something of the vote. So, so, you know, and this was funded by the Swedish International Development Agency and the Federal Foreign Office of Germany. You know? so, so why, pray tell, would two Western organizations fund a debate that concludes publicly on live Arabic television that there's a Western conspiracy against the Arab world, you know? I hope that's the argument to end all arguments, and still you get people who try to construct conspiracy <laughs> theories with the imperialist money. But the but the good thing, Nasser, is like you know, there's in in Berlin or Stockholm, yes. nobody you know even mentioned it to them. It's like because they understand this is about the process. We don't fund certain results to be publicized on Arabic television. This isn't public relations for values of the West. This is about supporting a process that is really, really important, where people negotiate in public their own values, their own narratives, and their own popular will. This is really so central to democracy. You cannot influence the, this process by predetermining results. That doesn't work. That's fascinating. You've done, you've achieved a lot on so little. And just from a matter of perspective, you should know that with the price of one Rafale jet fighter that uh, Egypt's Sisi bought from France, 
you can probably fund 81 years worth of Munadara. And how many Rafale jets did CC buy? He got 36, but actually there's an even more interesting um, number for you to take in perspective. One Abrams main battle tank costs about $40 million. Wow. Egypt has a thousand of them. Wow. So imagine how many centuries of Munadara can be funded <laughs> with just that. Yeah. Yeah. With, with the military equipment of just a single Arab country. I mean, we're not getting into Saudi Arabia, the four decades worth of Russian equipment in Libya, right. etc. But I have to say, weapon, uh, Russian weapons are cheaper, but they still can <laughs> get us at least two centuries. <laughs> so actually, before we got into, uh, we started recording, we're sitting in the lobby, we're talking a little bit about entrepreneurship. And I feel that this is a little bit of a backward approach, because what you did really is that you combined vision and excellent entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial skills where you actually created a product that is of use to the Arab world that there is a demand. Whereas when we were talking and we were interrupted, my observation was, is like, I am interested in entrepreneurship. And don't get me wrong. I want the next kid to do, if they can produce something that they generate revenue, I am all for it. But I'm not interested per se, in the next Shazam, Arab Shazam that will tell me, what is the different like identify whether this Nancy Ajran or what's the same? I'm interested in entrepreneurship because of a strategic value, which is creating solutions to actual problems in the Arab region with the with an eye on the real strategic goal, which is we need to get win uh, win people off of this silly, I think, and dis destructive idea that government is all we have to do is fix government and it, or our lives will be beautiful this is not going to happen because we couldn't fix our governments and even if we fix them they're not going to solve uh, all of our problems i in my 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 view social entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship's real value is that you give people the ability to generate wealth yeah. while solving societal problems which in effect cumulatively will spare you the need to go through a revolution or a war right. and just get government out of your face and shrink them out of the thing. But I think that's a, a longer conversation that I wanted to run by the two of you so that the two of you, meaning Ahmed and Iyad, and see how you react to that premise. So, Bilal, that's following up on what Nasser just said. I know that Munadara has a Munadara fellowship, and it seems that it's almost like an incubator of, uh, of NGOs and, and social entrepreneurship ideas. Do you see that as an evolution of Munadara's role, in a sense, becoming a conduit for a lot of those ideas? This is an interesting question. I don't think we've talked about it in that way yet. I am always concerned about you know, sticking to the mission of the Munadara initiative, which is to foster a vibrant and constructive public sphere in the Arab world. I think to the extent that people become opinion leaders and influencers in the Arab public sphere, supporting them on that path is fully within the mission of the Munadara initiative. And then, you know, perhaps putting them on a track where their projects can become sustainable, but not to get involved beyond that. I think that's that would be my take on that. So we talk quite a lot about entrepreneurship on this podcast and making civil society initiatives like this economically self-sustaining. I don't mean for this to come across critically, but is there a plan for Munadara to become independent of government grants and generate its own revenue in order to be self-sustaining in the future? 
Yes, Ahmed, there definitely is a plan. So as part of our uh, model, what we want to do, we have a five-year strategy, and one key element of that strategy is to syndicate our program on 20 channels by the end of 2020. And this will give us a kind of scale that will allow us to generate revenues from our content. So this is a really, really important pillar. You are absolutely right. There is no way to sustain an initiative of this kind solely through donations and grants. And that's why it is really, really important that we continue to develop these revenue streams for the Munadara Initiative. And all of our efforts are focused on this particular goal. Because once you have that, you know, not only will you actually be able to generate revenues through sponsorships, but you're actually doing something really, really important for the Arab public sphere, which has a structural problem. The problem is that there is this utter fragmentation. People live in, you know, their silos and, you know, realities that are completely different from, you know, you, sometimes your cousin will live in a different reality than you, depending on what kind of media they consume. So the syndication model actually reestablishes some of that shared reality that's gone lost. And we're strategically partnering with channels and broadcasters that represent the full ideological spectrum in the Arab world. So this is this is something, you know, where we're actually, Nasr, as you were saying earlier, this is actually one way that we're trying to hit that nexus between purpose and mission on the one hand and profit on the other. It's totally conceivable to do the two at the same time. And I, I fully believe that this is this is the future of, of impact and positive change in the Arab world and beyond. So I, I want to bring it back Abbas, to a question about the youth that you're training, because I find this incredibly fascinating and also inspiring when you see young men and women from like a village in, in Yemen or, or Libya or, or uh, you know, Morocco expressing themselves on topics of common concern with, with such eloquence and such rationality, which makes me wonder, is it that there's a kind of self-selection bias here that people who are, tend to be more rational in their mentality and their thinking find you? Or is it that it is actually easy or, you know, rather maybe easier than we would expect to train people on debate skills? So there definitely is a self-selection bias, especially online. So those who are online tend to be more privileged and they tend to have better education. But that's actually the very reason why the outreach program exists. The outreach program, you know, through our network of trainers, who then contact uh, local community-based organizations, it's, it's through that program that we really uh, sort of broaden the field and get those voices on board. Now, you mentioned the, the eloquence, and I totally agree with you uh, and the rationality and the critical thinking. It is really so very, very inspiring just to hear some of these, the most unlikely voices express themselves so eloquently. I think it's because of two reasons. One is that we vastly underestimate the potential that does exist, even among marginalized communities. The second one is, and I'd like to think that it does play a role, the training we designed over years and iterated for the last five years again and again based on the information that we're gathering from the trainings is really designed to convey a simple lesson, which is that there is inherent value in engaging with those that you disagree with. And it is important for you to back up your opinions with facts and evidence and rational argument. This is an intuitive lesson and I, I think that's such an opportunity because everybody understands this universally. 
you, you know, I, I think this is, this is more related to human nature than to any specific culture. So this is so encouraging to see that this lesson rings everywhere we go. And then you really tickle out this and unleash this tremendous potential that is really inherent to who we are as human beings. I find really fascinating the idea that you can incentivize certain types of behavior through very minor tweaks in the way a platform works, simply by changing the way they measured the winner in a debate to the number of voters swayed rather than an absolute percentage of the vote. Monadara were able to incentivize reaching out to the middle rather than locking yourself into your echo chamber. It's a lesson that could be learned in a number of different places. A lot's been written about how social media algorithms optimize for engagement, thus rewarding and amplifying shocking and provocative stuff. Criticisms of the electoral systems of Western democracies also look at first-past-the-post and constituency gerrymandering as two ways in which the quality of political discourse has reduced over time. It's not the idea of the system which is bad, it's the application, and stuff can be done better, whether it's traditional media, social media, or political systems. If you want to find out more about Abbas's work, you can find him on Twitter, at Abu Lavinia, and look up his NGO Monadara. Links are in the description of the podcast. Bil Abbas studied under Professor Jürgen Habermas, who's pretty much the originator of public sphere theory, and I'm really inspired by how Bil Abbas basically took this pretty dense theoretical discipline and built out of nothing an elegant and effective real-world application. He's currently a senior research scholar at Yale Law School's Information Society project, where he's working on more applications. Oh, and it turns out Bil Abbas is already a fan of the Arab Tyrant Manual, which makes me even more impressed. Let me just tell you how much I really, really enjoy your podcast. I have listened to every single episode. I have been recommending it to everybody left, right, and center. This is a phenomenal project. I recommend it to everybody. Just keep on doing this amazing work. Thanks again to the Oslo Freedom Forum for hosting this discussion. Bil Abbas Ben Krida, Nasser Wadadi, and Diyad al-Baghdadi for having such an interesting discussion. Sana Sakkari and Khulud Ahtewash for editing our podcasts. And to you for listening. I'm Ahmed Gatnash. This is the Arab Tyrant Manual Podcast, a project of the Kawakibi Foundation. Ya Mustafa, ya kitaban min kulli qalbin ta'allaf Wa ya zamana, sayati yamhu zamana al-muzayyab Ya Mustafa, ya kitaban min kulli qalbin ta'allaf Wa ya zamana, sayati yamhu zamana al-muzayyab